Welcome to episode 208 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good? Everything. The Lord's Day is good. Uh, beer is good. The fall is good. Not the fall, like capital F fall. Like the autumn, the autumn season is good. I knew, I knew what you were saying, and yet Couldn't I was thinking, it. cut to everybody Everybody's saying like, that what? They, yeah, they've just... <laughs> I didn't know Tony was a hyper-Calvinist. Yes, that's exactly... We are so like-minded that I was like, there's somebody out there that's going to hear that thing hyper-Calvinistic <laughs> yes, right away. Yes, fall. Yeah, amazing. Yes, we deny. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Good. Can't complain. Life's good. Good. How about you? I mean, listen, I feel the same way. I know I ask that of you a lot, like what's good, but you always give pretty good answers, which is to say God is good and everything he's made is good. And so I I feel like that's your way of saying like, don't ask me that question because I'm just going to trump you every time (laughs) with that answer. No, it's really like, eh, I don't know. Like, it's like when I call my mom on Sunday and it's like, what's new? And we're like, nothing. Everything's status quo. Nobody's sick. Nobody's hurt. Everybody's doing fine. Everybody has jobs. Can't complain. Which is like, that's an amazing blessing, isn't it? Yeah. If to think about our lives being in such a normal state of grace yeah. is really something that I've, I fail to give gratitude to God for on a regular basis. Yeah. But that's actually not a bad segue into how we want to start this episode. It's right? true. It's true. You know, uh, October, right? Everybody loves October. All, all of us reform people love October because it's Reformation Celebration Month. And this is not an affirmation or denial because we're not going to do those specifically today. Um, just a side thought, uh, Ligonier has this awesome new podcast out. Have you heard this? Yes. Luther in real time. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's sweet. It's a, like the idea behind this podcast is really cool. Basically every, they chronicle like a significant event in Luther's life, kind of starting with the papal bull um, of his excommunication or, or hit the, the ultimatum of his excommunication but all of the episodes come out 500 years to the day as best as historians can tell from the actual events so over the next year or six months however many it's going to go we're going to actually sort of like feel the tension of things building up as it goes so it's it's a really cool innovative idea that's a freebie check it out um (laughs) but what what we really wanted to uh talk about for uh reformation month for october is pastoral appreciation month Right. Yeah. I almost can't believe we've made it this far into the month and we haven't talked about this already. But, you know, I think sometimes with events like this, like in the church where we're setting aside a month to have a particular focus on just being reminded of your pastor and all the work that he does, it sometimes can feel a little bit contrived or staged. I get that. But the whole reason why we have to do that is because it's really a condemnation that we don't normally take the time to be thoughtful to our pastors and to appreciate them unless we're given pause to do so. So I think we should just lean into it, embrace it. And if it's been a little while since you sent an encouraging note, especially like a handwritten note or just pulled your pastor aside and just said how thankful you are. This is really a great excuse to do it. And you can, it can fall under the auspice. Maybe it's been a little bit too long. So you can just say, Hey, I know October is pastor appreciation month. And I just wanted to say you were doing a great job, buckaroo or whatever it is that you insert your own words there. Do you call your pastor buckaroo? (laughs) No, (laughs) because pastor buckaroo. 
Thanks for it praying actually, for me, Pastor Buckaroo. When it came out of my mouth, it, it just happened. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I can't close the box. And yeah. I thought, that sounds mildly disrespectful. So probably, maybe maybe not call your pastor, Buckaroo. Yeah, probably not. You know, um, I, I'll, I'll put a link. I actually will put a link in the show notes for this. Uh, one of the things that I uh, did for my pastor this year is I offered to preach for him. And that was this morning. Um, because one thing that you won't understand unless you're in a ministry family is how how much it actually stands out to people in ministry families that you don't ever actually get to go to church with your pastor. If your pastor is your, your father, for right. example, he never gets to sit with you in the service. He never gets to do most of those things that most of us take for granted. And sometimes might even be a little annoyed with, like I remember in high school, I would have friends who wanted to not sit with their families. Cause it was kind of like, oh, I always see my family. And so for uh, pastor appreciation month, I wanted to give him the opportunity to actually sit next to his wife. And it was a gift for her as well. Uh, and to just be at the service without any responsibilities other than the pastoral prayer. And um, the, the sermon that I preached, uh, I preached out of um, Hebrews 13. And the goal of the sermon was to ground this idea of pastoral appreciation in, in a command of scripture. So we right don't on. we don't just do pastoral appreciation because it's it's tradition. It is the, the the timing that we do it, the particular way we celebrate it might might be a tradition that we've developed, and that's okay. But um, you know Hebrews thirteen seven says to remember your leaders, and it's not just a straight uh, bring to mind. It's not a you know just rem- have the information come to the forefront of your of your mind. It's really more commemorate your leaders and and celebrate your leaders. It's, it's the same word. And I didn't plan this, but it's the same word that, um, is used when Jesus says, do, do this in remembrance of me. Right. So it's almost a ritualistic, uh, it's, it has covenant implications. It's a, it's a serious word. And so we should take the task of remembering our pastor, commemorating our pastor, celebrating and appreciating our pastor. We should take it seriously. And although you're absolutely right that we should do this all year long, uh, it is especially nice in October because it it takes some of the awkwardness that might come out of uh, saying some of the nice things about your pastor that you would tend to say in October, the the kinds of really heartfelt sentiments that we might not always feel comfortable saying. It takes that awkwardness out of it and it frees us up to do it a little bit. So I'll put the link in the sermon or up to the sermon in our notes. Uh, It'll actually be up on the SORP website uh, on the feed. So if you're subscribed to the mega feed, you can just check that out, but take, take October and take a little bit of time to celebrate your pastor, to tell him how appreciative you are, to let him know how much his teaching has influenced you and is, is edifying you. Um, You know, pastors burn out at an alarming rate and a lot of it is just, they don't feel appreciated and they don't feel as though their work is doing anything. And it takes a lot of diligence to continue to labor in a a field where you feel like nothing is growing. So uh, take that extra step and show them something is growing. It'll really help. And it's been a hard year, of course, for everybody. And I think pastors in particular with the weight that they've really had to carry on their shoulders. And so I would encourage everybody to be a little bit creative this year. So of course, it's nice if you want to buy a gift. That's totally appropriate. And certainly that would be a great blessing to your pastor. But maybe there's more creative things you can do. I really affirm the way in which you went out of your way to find a creative way to give back and to give a gift that's a little bit off the center, but is really, really meaningful. So I don't know what that means to your pastor. Maybe it's sharing some time or doing something, a chore for them that they might have to do that you could take up on, on yourself. Maybe you should build them a boat. I don't know. Whatever it is that's going to make them feel appreciated in a profound way, let's try to be a little bit more creative in this particular year because it is just, this is, it's a massive, I mean, so I'm just going to fall short on words here. All I'm going to do is rely on the fact that um, 
I'm just gonna have to have people trust me. Like coming from a family that where my father has been a pastor all my entire my life, I cannot tell you how meaningful it has been to him. And I know this to be true when people show common measures of grace yeah. and gratitude toward him. It is transformative. That's all I can say. I know this yeah. sounds ridiculous, but to know that the work that you're doing, the laboring that you're doing for the Lord is appreciated and seen and that it's had an impact is remarkable. Like I, this sounds crazy. I'm telling you, it'll make a profound difference yeah. in the life of your pastor. If you show a little bit of appreciation, because it's just a crazy job. I mean, can we just be honest about that? Like it's, it's, a, this is a job that nobody should undertake. Certainly nobody should undertake on their own. That's what the scripture tells us. And for good reason. But recently I had somebody in my own church who became aware that my father was a pastor and he came up to me and said, your father's a pastor. I said, yeah, he has been, he was in youth ministry and now he's a senior pastor. He's been doing that for uh, many, many years now, leads a congregation in a small community. And he said, so why aren't you a pastor? And I said, <laughs> Because my father's a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I've seen that firsthand. And that is not only a special calling, I've just seen what it's like to be in the trenches of that day in and day out and yeah. to give selflessly, to be concerned about personal holiness because you know it's not just about you, but about how you lead your congregation. So it's almost like we really can't underemphasize, I think, the role that pastors have. And nobody knows that stress except for this is why pastors need to get together and talk to one yeah. another because really there's no other comparison in any kind of profession, any kind of industry to what they're laboring to do on behalf of the Lord and the mantle that they have to carry. So please, would you, if you have a pastor whom you appreciate, who's preaching the word of God to you, who is serving and shepherding you and your people, would you please, I say this literally for the love of God, would you show a little appreciation this month? Yeah. That would be, it would mean a lot to me, honestly, as a, as a pastor's child and certainly would mean a lot to your pastor. Yeah. And you know, not to belabor this segment, but the other element to keep in mind too, is that although uh, there is no New Testament office of pastor's wife or pastor's kid, um, right. a pastor's family also makes a lot of sacrifices and a lot of uh, heartbreak and a lot of emotional investment. Um, so, you know, say thank you to their kids, say thank you to their wife, um, include them in your little, your little notes that you send to the pastor about how much you appreciate the sacrifices family's making. Um, you know, as someone who is not, not, uh, maybe not first tier pastor's kid, but maybe is like pastor's kid once removed, if we can use that, that sort of way of talking, um, it really is, a family commitment and um, you know, the, the kids and a lot of times the wife of the family, they don't, they don't really get a say in as much of what's going on as the pastor does. Um, in some ways they kind of end up being along for the ride. So make sure right. that as you appreciate your pastor, that you respect and observe the the sacrifice that he's made, the sacrifice that his family has made um, and go out of your way to make sure that the whole family of your pastor and your pastor especially knows that you appreciate their labor and their work. And we believe it's important enough that that's why we wanted to start off this episode with at least two opportunities for the people of God to give, to sow generosity and gratitude. That's the first one. And there's also a second one, right, Tony? Yeah. And, you know, this is a sort of a, this is a hard one. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the Reformed Brotherhood being a family, being a, a community. We talk about how we want it to be more than just a podcast. And if you remember uh, a couple episodes back, we did an episode on public uh, 
public worship and how it's superior to private worship. And we we got just a really amazing uh, comment that just kind of leveled me from one of our listeners named Jimmy Snowden. And he talked about how his son has uh, several medical challenges. And because of those medical challenges, it's it's not possible and hasn't been possible for many years for his wife and he to both attend public worship on the same week. And so they, they kind of trade off and hand off um, responsibilities for who's caring for their son and who's able to go uh, join the saints in worship. And it recently came to my attention uh, this morning, actually, that Jimmy's son, whose name is James, has recently been admitted to the hospital. Um, actually, it's not been that recent. They've been there for uh, probably uh, almost a month now, I think. And um, they are at the point where uh, Jimmy, uh, his earn time has run out. Um, they're really struggling in terms of just how do we manage this um, they're living in an RV in the parking lot of the hospital because they, uh, someone has to be in the room with their son. And, and so the other person sleeps in the RV and they kind of take turns. So one of, uh, one of Jimmy's, I believe it's Jimmy's wife's cousin has set up a GoFundMe, uh, for their family to help offset some of the medical bills. And then also to help give them some sort of cushion for, uh, the financial kind of burden and the financial loss that they're going to suffer as they kind of wrestle through this. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into too many details, but, he, his main thing he's asking for is prayer. And, and this is just an example of how God works, right? So he, he comes to Facebook, he asks for prayer. And what he asks for for prayer is that his son could sleep because the, the mm. particular condition he has involves a lot of pain and a lot of involuntary motion. And so he just hasn't been able to sleep. And I guess today has been the first time that he's been able to sleep for several weeks now, more than a couple hours wow. at a time. He's, I guess he's going on eight or nine hours, which is, is huge. So we would love it. Um, obviously, your first commitment is always to your church. Um, but if you are ordinarily someone who who gives to these things, please consider, um, we're going to put a link up on the website, please consider donating to, to this GoFundMe that's set up on behalf of Jimmy and his family. Um, any little bit will help, I'm sure. And you know, it reminds me when Paul is talking in the second letter to the Corinthians, he's talking about giving as a church. And he talks about how the Macedonians have sort of finished well because they gave not right. out of their abundance, but out of their lack. And they were right. so energetic about giving that they actually gave so much so that it hurt. They gave sacrificially. And, you know, I, as I look at my own giving and my own finances, I, 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 give as sacrificially as I can, but I think I probably can be more sacrificial in my giving. So consider it. If the Lord leads you, I'm sure that it would be appreciated. Um, this is a brotherhood, right? We're, we're here right. to support each other, to learn about the Lord, to worship the Lord together. And this is one way that, that this community that's forming around this podcast and, and that we've started to build, this is one way that we can concretely support one of our brothers who really, really needs some help right now. Right. I, it, you know, it strikes me that this is, I hope, hopefully like one of the things that's actually like a differentiator for us that there's lots of podcasts and nowadays, is it not in vogue, especially with everything that's happened in 2020 to speak of things like servant leadership yeah. and togetherness and being better together and having a sense of camaraderie or fidelity or union or solidarity. All these words can be next to meaningless if they're not accompanied by some type of action. Yeah. And so what occurs to me is that if nothing else, what we should do loved ones is pray for Jimmy and his family. Like it, that, that should be the least of all things. And it's really the smallest of all inconveniences. But if we can do one thing to rally around this idea in our spoken voice of this podcast, of being something more than just a form of entertainment or cerebral appeasement that we're actually calling each other when there's times like this to pray for one another in specific ways and for specific means, would you please start to daily pray 
for Jimmy, his family, and the healing of his son. If we can't, if Tony and I can't do that, if we can't get people to rally around that, then really in some ways, what's the purpose of all this? Yeah. Because it's one thing to talk about theology and we ought to have good theology, but of course that theology should lead us into doxology, into practical holiness and practice. Yeah. And so I think it just seems abundantly clear that here's one way to do this. Whether you can give financially or not, and we hope that there's some that might be able to afford that. If not, would we all join together really in praying? This, this is a part of our community that we put together that we're volitionally involving ourselves in. And I'm just asking everybody if they would pray. Yeah. And, and you know, Jimmy actually lives you know, in this area near me and he's admitted at the hospital. His son is admitted at the hospital that... I work at. So I'm hoping to have the opportunity to actually sit down and pray with him. And, you know, I, I love what we're building as a community. And I don't mean me and Jesse, I mean, all of us as a community, but I think Jesse's right. This, this is the kind of situation where the rubber hits the road. Are we going to talk a big talk about community and supporting each other? Or are we actually just going to, you know, lace up our shoes and get out on the track and do it. And I would really love to see, um, not, not just because it would be awesome, but I, I really, you know, I think that the Lord wants us to, to serve each other this way. I know that the Lord wants us to serve yes. each other this way. So if, if you feel led, no, no guilt from us, if you don't, if your finances are not in a place where you can do that, or if you, you feel there are other areas that the Lord is leading you to give more, there's no guilt or shame on our part. Um, but please do consider and pray about it and think about if, whether, uh, whether this is a way that the Lord is asking you to support a brother. Um, if not, go in peace. But if he is, then um, take a look at our website and you'll be able to find the link for where to donate to that. And we have a bit of a theme going on this episode because we, we want to start with these ideas of ways to show a little bit of gratitude, to also show support to the family of God by way of prayer and giving, but also because we're going to kick off a several part series here on communion on the Lord's Supper. And so this is all relevant to me, at least, because we're talking about the family of God being the family of God, understanding what it means to unite in consummate harmony, our theology with our representation as many members of a single body. And so we conceived of this idea to speak a little bit about communion and then take subsequent episodes to really talk about different viewpoints theologically on communion, on the Lord's Supper, what's happening in the Lord's Supper, so as to delineate what is being thought about or what is being practiced according to these different theological traditions, but then to really critically evaluate, well, what does the Bible teach in this matter? And how do we evaluate, how can we bring to bear what the scriptures say against these many different, and there are many different viewpoints on the Lord's Supper. So we're going to take this episode just to talk as way of kind of like a primer or an opening about communion. And the reason why I think it's helpful to just start with a little bit of conversation is because I think for many of us, we know something about communion and the Lord's Supper, at least by way of the, the way in which it's been practiced traditionally in our churches. And we speak about it as like a means of grace. But sometimes I wonder, do we even know what that grace means? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that this is hard because the phrase means of grace is one of those phrases that has multiple meanings, even within the single, like a single tradition, right? right? So the means of grace could be capital M, capital G, technical language to refer to specific elements of worship that, that are present in the service. Um, or it could, could be kind of lowercase M, lowercase G to just talk about the way that God, God blesses us and sanctifies us. Right. Um, you know, is, is prayer a means of grace? 
in one sense, yes. In another sense, maybe not. Um, is preaching a means of grace? Most most Reformed traditions would say, yeah, it's it's capital M, capital G, means of grace. And what's nice about this is nobody disagrees in the Reformed tradition that the Lord's Supper is a mean capital M, capital G, means of grace. Amen. And so what we have to do is we have to sort of peel back some of the uh, preconceived notions that a lot of us have about what what the Lord's Supper is, and, and probably more. We have to do the work to like not initially react and, and be forced to talk about what we think it isn't um, yes. because that that is our I think is our instinct. Um, you know, well, it's it's not it's not actually the body and blood, but <laughs> but maybe it <laughs> right. is like we right, initially right. react to jump to talking about what we think it isn't. And so a lot of times we never get to a positive, constructive argument for what it is. So I'm excited to kind of talk a little bit about those elements of what it is, no pun intended, um, to just really well dig into it a little bit. And then as we go through this series, we're going to get into some of those nitty gritties about what it is and what it isn't and what different traditions believe. Um, but today we just kind of want to give an overview of, of the big picture. Yes. And the reason why I think that's a decent starting point is think about for the average Christian, how difficult it might be if somebody who is a non-believer, doesn't know much about church tradition or history, comes up and says, what is this communion thing that you do? Tell me what that is. Yeah. That's actually for most probably a fairly difficult question to answer. And you're right. We generally want to go with the negative. We want to talk about what it's not, define it in the abstract or in the relief, as opposed to, well, just give me some simple statements about what it is. And so I figured, let's start there. Let's just talk about like what communion is. And then we'll have all the fun later on and getting into all like the really fun nuances and the deep like, you know, let's get technical. We're going to have those conversations. It's going to be great. Yeah. So. I, I'm trying to like weirdly tease this series, but I'm doing a really <laughs> poor job. Like I'm trying to set it up. Like the technical stuff is coming, so get excited. It's gonna be it's gonna be super super great. But it's like I, the I like trailer. The trailer for the movie is actually all of the like technical specifications <laughs> of the movie. Yeah. It's yes. the, it's the credits yes. where it talks about the different people who did like computer animation. Yes, that's yeah. our version of that's like the exciting yeah. stuff. That's how we get there. But I like where you started because you know the means of grace are God's like appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. And so there's something special in communion, like even more special than I think I comprehend it. And of course, that old saying about why does somebody go to college to study psychology so they can understand something about themselves? In some ways, this is selfish because I love talking about this because I want to understand it in a more complete way. But let's just talk about, let's start by saying, well, what is this thing? So uh, let me read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, which is uh, the instruction that Paul gives us. And I think this is helpful for just shaping at the outset our conversation about this. And maybe like the essential characteristics of her describing what's taking place. We talk about the Lord's Supper, why we even call it that, and also communion. So here's what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I think what's obvious at the face, I'm just going to, let me be the obvious fall guy here on this. What's obvious, but we should state, it's worth mentioning, is that communion is a meal. Yeah. We have to eat, we have to drink. It's why, I'm going to throw out this word, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at later points, but it's why this, this sacrament is often referred to as a supper. But it's, of course, no meal that's ordinary. It's the Lord's meal, because, of course, he instituted it, as Paul describes here. And he is the host, 
and we are his guests. Right. You know, so the cup is called the Lord's cup and the table is called the Lord's table because it's not just something we show up to do for God, but there's an actual invitation here. We are the guests and this is a meal. Yeah. And you know, I, I think one of the things that as I've grown more and more into a sort of fully orbed reformed theology that I've come to appreciate and this is why I think the Lord's Supper actually is sort of the perfect uh, way to explain what we mean when we talk about means of grace is that it is, in one sense, the most ordinary thing in the world, right? right. We eat every day. We have a meal every day, multiple times a day, um, you know, and, and so on one level, what we do is very ordinary, right? That's why we talk about the ordinary means of grace. We don't mean that like these are the regular means of grace and there's these extraordinary <laughs> means of grace. Right. What we mean is that the the means of grace are incredibly ordinary. There's nothing Normal. special about them in and of themselves. And so when you talk about the Lord's Supper as a meal, we're, we're not talking about it. And th this is actually maybe to, to preview some of the conversations that I'm sure we'll get into in the next couple of weeks. This is one of the things that drives me nuts about the way most churches do communion is because we a lot of times don't recognize that it is supposed to be relatively ordinary and it's outward, um, it's outward ornamentation. It's supposed to be ordinary. It's not supposed to be frilly. Right. When we do these, these services where the supper is so far removed from a meal, and this is not to knock on any particular church. You know, a, a little cardboard tasting wafer is not a meal. A little thimble full of juice is not a meal. And so there are good reasons why we do that. And and I think we'll we'll agree on certain levels that the the mode of communion is not the central issue at right. hand, but it is an right. issue that should be talked about. Yes. But in a lot of ways, the ordinariness of this is exactly what's distinct in the Reformed tradition about the Lord's Supper. And before we go much further, I want to say, you know, last week, we I think we, we labored to make the point that the 1689 Reformed Baptist tradition and the Westminster tradition and the Continental traditions, we're all like super close cousins. And so although the the what's happening in baptism is different in terms of the outward application. Uh, we say that in baptism, actually, the, the, the actual thing that's happening is not all that different. And it's even more so the case in the Lord's Supper, that if you look, um, there's a side-by-side -side comparison, if you just look up tabular comparison of the Westminster Confession and the 1689 London Baptist Confession, somebody put together a really beautiful, well-put-together chart that shows all the differences. And there's hardly any substantial differences between right. what the Westminster has to say and the 1689 has to say. There's a few changes that represent um, the difference in understanding of ecclesiology, which is tied into this. There's a few differences. It calls it an ordinance versus a sacrament. But but the core elements of what, what this thing is that we do, what it means, who can do it, what it's about, they're, it's stunningly the same. And so I think this is a really good way for us to talk about in our shared, you know, maybe we say lowercase r, reform tradition, to, to talk about what the ordinary means of grace are right. and, and how what's special about us in the reform groups is that the means are actually ordinary. When you get into, and we'll talk more in detail, but when you get into anything besides the reform tradition, either it's, it's uh, the means are not ordinary, right? So Lutherans, Catholics, Anglicans, Eastern Orthodox, the means are anything but ordinary. The means are extremely supernatural. 
The elements uh, may or may not remain what they are, but they, they have something added to them and changed about them. Right. Or you swing all the way to the other side where the means aren't even means, let alone ordinary. So, so they don't do anything. They don't accomplish anything. They aren't the means of anything that God is doing for us or to us. They're actually the means of us doing something to or for God. So right. when we're in the reformed world, and, and obviously we're a reformed show, I think we're in the sweet spot. Because the, we're not saying anything about the communion table or the or the supper to say that in itself there's anything extraordinary going on, but there is something extraordinary going on when the saints partake by faith, and that's yes, the key right. to, to this whole idea. Yes, so that's beautiful because this is why I like having this conversation because I think it's pushing back against this idea that it's almost like we all have a sense that what we think we know communion to be, but we don't really often talk about what we think that we think we know communion to be. And so this is really, really derivative, derivative nebulous idea. And we haven't right. articulated it well. And then we get caught up in like, what is tradition versus what does this actually mean? So that's really beautiful because I love this idea of thinking as Paul describes it, that Jesus is inviting us to sup with him, to dine with him. That there's something special about that. And just as it would be ridiculous if for me to show up and try to superimpose or impose myself upon somebody for an invitation to go eat with them. Here we're seeing there's an amazing amount of graciousness in God to take something that is ordinary and totally normal. Like, let's just have dinner. Let's right. have dinner together. There's, there's something special about eating with people, even when it's like ordinary food, just normal stuff. That makes it special. But here we see what the Bible tells us everywhere, and that is that anything that's extraordinary belongs to God, and that God himself uses what is normal and small and seemingly mundane so as to emphasize and to demonstrate and reveal his immense power and glory. Right. And he does that in this beautiful idea of come together, come as the family, and, and come dine. So there is like a part of this, of course, that there is, it's a sacrificial meal. It's a meal. And I feel like we sometimes like blow past that. That's why I brought that right. up first. Like it's this idea of eating together is awesome, right? I mean, yeah. like, like isn't eating with good people, good friends, good family, amazing? Like that, that's yeah. an amazing thing. And so we sometimes blow past that and we try to get to, well, let's talk about the elements. What do they mean? Are you doing wine or grape juice? And we forget that. Let's just talk about the fact that we're we're being given sustenance and God has used what is a basic need of humankind to eat and to nourish their bodies right. as a place, a starting point for some means of grace. So it's a meal and it's a sacrificial meal, but, and this is anticipating a bit, but I want to get into this now, not a sacrifice. Right. So Christ is not re-sacrificed during this process. He's not offering himself up on our behalf over and over again. And the scriptures expressly declare that Christ sacrificed himself once and for all. And so communion takes place at a table and not at an altar. So right. can you, now Now we can go to Hebrews, of course, and look at that. Uh, the author talking about Christ not needing to be like the other priests who required over and over again to offer sacrifices daily. Once and for all, he sat down. I love that. He sat down when everything was done to communicate that it was in fact complete. Um, would you allow me a quick excursus on this point though? I'll allow and, it. Oh, thank you. I'm going out. I want to get your opinion. I'm kind of going out in uncharted territory. I don't know if we've talked oh, about this before. Man. But All right, what, let's I, do what, it. I've, what I've discovered is I think the process of talking about communion, as you already noted, does tend to draw out sometimes our theological pet peeves. So it does. for me, here's one of them. I've never understood a certain piece of furniture in contemporary churches. And oh, that is I know exactly what you're talking about. The altar. Yeah. I've just, I've never understood this. And, and of course, we're trying to like, I think... 
like bring together, like amalgamate the altar and the table representing like the table, God's table, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper on this table. But being that we're talking about uh, is celebrating a sacrifice, but this not being a sacrifice, the table, or excuse me, the altar in the concept of the altar seems like a total skeuomorph to me. It's like the fact that, you know, when you go to, I don't know, Microsoft Word, there's still to save. The icon is still a floppy disk. Like, no, it's outmooded. Nobody knows what that is. It's not relevant in the same right. way anymore. Uh, how do you feel about that? Am I just like off the deep end on that? No. And I mean, uh, honestly, like this is one of those, you're exactly right. It's, it's, a, um, it's a totally leftover symbol of yes. of something that's unbiblical to start with. So yes. it's it's it, you know I remember it's funny when I when I came to faith I've mentioned this before I was in a Lutheran church and we used to um we used to have a like a youth choir that would would sing and so maybe like three or four times a year we would go we had different sites at the church so each each site we would go and sing at the site maybe three or four times a year. And I remember distinctly the the, the more conservative of the services they had this big altar. And I remember setting, I, I came in, we were getting our stuff set up and I literally just set my hat down. I took my hat off. I set my hat down on the altar. It wasn't during the service. It wasn't anything. Right. Nothing was going on. Well, I'm, I'm I just sure set it, it down for well. a second. To un, and, and the person just lost their mind. The person who was, who had led us into the room. And I truly did not understand why. And here's, here's the issue. And this is why the, the concept of an altar is so repugnant to reformed sensibilities is that that piece of wood was now invested with special spiritual significance right that there is no warrant in scripture for us to do in the new testament church and so it it is at its very base level a return to the old testament economy it's 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 literally all the things that that the author of hebrews and and paul in galatians is saying we shouldn't do so i i I agree with you And, and the funny thing is like well what's the difference between a table and an altar that that difference is in the mind of the person looking at it. Yes, it's in the exactly. tradition of what it's being called right. and how it's being handled. And you know, I think the difference, the biggest difference in the reform tradition is exactly what you just say. Like we're this is a meal celebrating a sacrifice, but it is not in itself a sacrifice. And you know, that that has to do with being rested in in the final work of Christ. It has to do with lots of different theological concepts and issues going on. But what I think is really um, appealing to me about all of that, aside from the fact that it's what the Bible teaches, um, is just the fact that it is so straightforward. We don't, if I come into church this morning and I, you know, I walk up and I got to plug in the sound system and I set my hat down on the table, nobody cares, right? Cause it's just a table. <laughs> it, it happens to be where we set the offering plate and the, you know, the dish that we hand around when we do communion, it happens to be where that stuff sits. Right. Um, it's funny because I thought you were going to talk about how every Baptist church has the same table that says, do this in remembrance of me on the front. Yeah. And I yes. don't know who makes that table, but they just have to be rolling in cash because <laughs> like every church has it. Well, but that's, that's kind of my point is like, here's a weird place where theology has influenced our furnishings yeah. because we're carrying over this idea. And even if people don't say here, would you agree that the most common description for that table though is altar? Yeah. Oh yeah. That, pe- that yeah. people would say, I'll put this on the altar or look at the flowers on the altar. Those look so nice. They're right. in remembrance of so-and-so I- I'm with you. And that's what I'm saying. Like we need to purge that even language because we're using something that's so outmooted and outdated that it's not relevant yeah. anymore. And it actually does us a disservice because we should be talking about the table. And if you want to use that, that's much better language. Yeah. But you're right. I, where did that happen? Like at some point in it, like North American churches, 
they all got together and were like, we need this table and we need to say, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> and some guy was like, uh, all right, I guess, uh, <laughs> It'll take a couple days, and then they just mass produce them. And what's odd about it is, so I don't want to make too much fun, because I know that it's coming from like a, a sincere intention. Right. The intent is to express that we need to practice this discipline wholeheartedly, that we need to be reminded. But isn't that the oddity, that we need some kind of physical thing again, which we've rarely against in lots yeah. of different ways. Here's just another example is, yes, when we eat and drink this meal, we're declaring that Christ died for us and our need for his sacrifice. Right. And although this is not a sacrifice, it is a meal in relation to a sacrifice. Right. So in Corinthians, you know, the apostle Paul associates communion with the sacrificial meals in the old Testament. Right. And then I think it's just like one chapter later, we're told that the bread represents Christ's body and the wine, the blood of Christ, which was shed for the transmission or excuse me, remission of sins. So we are to eat and drink a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And as we do that, we proclaim, literally we're announcing, we're declaring the Lord's death until he comes. I don't think I need the table to tell me that. Right. I understand why we carve it in there. But the question we should be asking, like if everything's on the table in this whole series, oh man, I did not mean that pun. <laughs> if, 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 if we're throwing, that Every, just came out. If everything's on the table, like written on throwing, the side of the table. If we're throwing everything on the table to evaluate, then I think even seemingly like silly stuff like this, so to speak, we should say, why do we do this? Why? Yeah. Like for somebody coming in who understands nothing about this, it seems really strange. And I think if you try to explain it by way of the scriptures, you're not going to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm trying to be as charitable as possible, it is a silly, it's, it's a silly little thing. And I don't know why we do it. I, I would hazard a guess that, that you could have also written, this isn't an altar on the table <laughs> or we're not Catholic on the table. And it probably would have been sort of the same intention, right? The, That's the intention behind emphasizing remembrance on like physically rid it on that table is to locate a particular congregation. You're never going to go into a Lutheran church and find a table that says, do this in remembrance of me, True. right? You're not going to go into a Roman Catholic church and find a table or an altar that says, do this in remembrance of me. And so it's, you're also probably not going to go into most, most like Presbyterian congregations and find that, but it, it has to do, and we'll get into all of the different Zwinglianism, Lutheranism, we'll get into all of that, but it has to do with trying to isolate and, and have a visual reminder of what we are saying. And in some ways, it's just like we started, like it's almost impossible to talk about this subject without defaulting to talk about what we're not saying is that statement on the table is really a way to say, we don't think this is more than a symbol. Like right, not, right. not that every church that has that table, because like most people don't realize this, but like you can get like catalogs of church furniture of like buying a pulpit and like a, a pew. This is just the table that's available. It's, it's the right size and dimensions for most churches of a certain <laughs> It just flavor. sounds more and more funny the more we talk about it. I know, it. but like it, in a lot of ways, it really is a visual statement to define a congregation and to explicitly state the theology in sort of a slogan to say when we do this, it's a remembrance. It's a commemoration. Right. It's not, it's not a sacrifice. It's not a corporeal feasting on the Lord. It's none of that. Instead, what it is, is it's a celebration. It's a, it's a shared meal that we have at a table in order to commemorate and to proclaim and remember what it is that Christ has done with us. Right. That's well us. said. I mean, it is funny. I like that. It's basically an advertisement, right? It's yeah. like a, it's like a, a visual vetting process. So you walk in and you're like, okay, I know what these people are doing here. 
I see it on the table, but you're right. And that's why, so it's, it's a meal, it's a sacrificial meal, or at least it's related to the sacrifice, but is not a sacrifice, but that goes, I would say hand in glove with, with what the next thing that comes to my mind, which is it's a fellowship meal. Yeah. So we're talking about people being together. And so the word communion, of course, even just used colloquially, we're, we're borrowing that from Paul and because he's, he's at make, he gives these like rhetorical questions that makes communion take place throughout the meal. He's, he's emphasizing that this is what happens. It's people together. And so of course, communion means to share, to fellowship in, to participate or to commune with. So I think we want to emphasize as well that fellowship is, it's a real participation in the benefits represented by the supper that right. communion or participation is in the, it's rooted in the body and the blood of Christ. So when we eat and we drink of this meal, we're participating or sharing in the body and the blood of the Lord. And I'm, I'm trying to, the reason why I'm stuttering through that is I'm like hedging. Cause I don't want to like reveal the grand stuff that we'll talk about later, but yeah. just to try to again, set that up for us. Yeah. And, and that's, that's important because the, the ordinary means of grace, the reason, and, and I will sort of like preview where we'll go a little bit, but the real reason that we affirm ordinary means of grace is because it's God who uses those, those means of right. grace. It's exactly. God who does it. And so in, in the ordinary means of grace, in, in the ordinary act of eating bread and drinking wine or juice or whatever element is present, in that ordinary act, when combined with faith, when, when, when partooken in faith, partaken, partooken? I should, but I shorn't. Um, <laughs> when you partake by faith in that, you're partaking of the symbol. And because you're doing that in faith, you're also partaking of the thing that that symbol signifies. Right. And so um, this is, you know, this is where we're going to end up going. Like we're not Zlinglians, not in a, not in a strict sense. We don't, we don't believe that it is purely a symbol. We don't believe that there's, there's nothing effective happening. Um, but we also are not Lutherans or Roman Catholics who think that's something, you know, substantial, <laughs> excuse the pun, something substantial <laughs> is happening, right? Although all the, the, the one Lutheran that we're listening to yes. is like, no, where's, no, no. it's cranky. Um, but it's important. It's important for us to get that right. Yes. Because I remember, you know, when I first started studying communion and I was still in a Lutheran context, I remember getting really offended that someone spilled a little drop of, of, grape juice on the floor. And like, I, I went out of my way to like clean it up. And I also, I was, I was a Lutheran in terms of my, uh, sacramentology. And so I thought there was way more going on than meets the eye. Uh, but I was at a Baptist college and I remember we did communion in chapel and then I saw them throwing the communion elements in the garbage and I like lost my mind. Right. So there's a lot that goes into this and it has all of these sort of inroads into other areas of our theology and inroads into other elements right. of, of our system that we don't always fully understand. And, and it's right. important because it does affect how we think about other things in terms of theology as well. Yes. And this is one of those, I'm just gonna say it this way, super fun topics and places where there are all these practical outworkings because we're dealing with physical elements right. in representation. So uh, what we find is that our theology suddenly, if we haven't realized this before, we realize, oh my word, my theology actually impacts what, how, how I understand the world, what I actually practice, because now I have to decide what do I do with the extra wine that's left over? Yeah, and exactly. What, does that mean anything with what I do with it? And so this is like a really interesting place where a lot of people I find like their theology, the metal of their theology is tested because you're going to find out what they believe by the way that you treat these physical elements, which are part of this practice. Not only that, but you and I have spoken at length about how it's far better for us in our practice of theology and in our Christian walk to consider that we 
apprehend things by faith. That's right. what's normative, not by sight. Here, though, is a wonderful place where God has given us physical elements to participate in, which it is okay for us to understand and use in a particular inappropriate way. And so there we also find our theology tested yeah. to see what its metal is really like, because yeah. this is like the great opener. Like this is the place of entry, I think, into so many people and understanding what they actually believe when you talk about these things. And so, you know, Paul explains what's happening here with this illustration that's in verse 18 that we just read, you know, in old Testament worship, the priest and the worshiper would eat the sacrifice. And right. in so doing, Paul says that they partook of the altar, the altar right. that was relevant to that particular time. That is the all and all that the altar stood for. So in other words, in eating the sacrifice animal, they received or participated in the benefits of the sacrifice, such as the forgiveness of sins. So likewise, when we eat of the Lord's sacrificial meal, we share in the benefits of the blood in the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about it. But this is absolutely true. <laughs> like, and, and we, I think we understand this in other areas of our lives. Like we, we instinctively understand this. Um, there's no ontological change when I uh, get a new job, right? My, my right. physical makeup doesn't change. But now because I have uh, committed certain things to that employer and that employer has committed certain things to me, I'm now a part of a new organization that I was not formerly a part of an organization, right? So, so we understand that engaging in some kinds of outward realities can make changes in inward realities as well. Um, you know, when I, when I, um, put on, when I worked for geek squad, when I put on my geek squad uniform, I had to be careful about how I acted out in the community because we held ourselves to a very specific outward kind of, um, persona. Uh, if I was going to go out for a beer after work with one of my coworkers, we took our, we took our geek squad emblems off. we left them in the car because we, we didn't want to be associated with certain elements. Um, so it's, it's important for us to, to remember that because I do, I do think sometimes, um, I don't have it specifically in front of me, but there, there was a funny meme, uh, and I, it was funny, although it was really dumb. Um, and it was by, uh, the guy who does the Lutheran satire, uh, website. And it was basically mocking the Zwinglian view of baptism. And it said like the thing that doesn't do anything uh, if you don't do the thing that doesn't do anything wrong, then it doesn't do the thing that it doesn't do unless you do it again. And then you need to do it the way that you're supposed to do it. And he was saying like, there's this element where the Zwinglian view of baptism or we extend to the Zwinglian view of um, the Lord's Supper is that it doesn't do anything. And so right. if it doesn't actually do anything and it's entirely about your articulation, then the outward element, the outwardness of it actually becomes extremely important in a sort of paradoxical turn. Yes. If what is important is your partaking by faith, then the specific, the specificity of the elements isn't unimportant, right? We, we affirm that there are certain things that need to happen and should happen and certain things that would be inappropriate. You know, if, if you're doing communion with Doritos and Mountain Dew, um, you, you're probably not doing communion. If you're doing it, you're not doing it right. So we, we want to find ourselves somewhere in the middle of that, where we want to affirm the symbols are important, but they're symbols. But yes. we also want to affirm that when we participate in those symbols, we participate in the symbols and we participate yes, in right the thing that they signify through those symbols. And so there is, we are going to have conversations about the elements. I'm sure that will broach 
the does it have to be wine or can be grape juice we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff but uh, you know i think it's been good to sort of do like a general primer because this is one of those things that I, I fear a lot of reformed Christians don't think deeply about. They find right. themselves in one of those kind of default poles of the spectrum. Either the Lord's Supper is this mysterious thing where there's almost like magic happening and we don't understand it, so we're not even really going to dig into it. Or they push so far to the other side, usually in response to that nonsense, they push right. so far to the other side that it really doesn't mean anything. So I'm glad that we're able to do this series to kind of really root what the Reformed tradition actually says and thinks about this. Um, and I hope that some of our listeners really think about this in a way that they haven't before. Because I know that I never really, really thought about my communion theology. I've mentioned it on the show before, but there was a brief time uh, in college where I actually was considering converting to Roman Catholicism. And I never thought about my communion, my, my Lord's Supper theology until that happened, because I, I was suddenly forced to grapple with, can I get with this idea that there's this substantive transformation in the bread and in the wine? And um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't biblically justify it. But then I had to sort of think like, okay, if I can't, if I can't get with that, then what, what do I actually believe? What is the right. biblical reason I can't do that? Why is it that that bothers me? What are the biblical positions that actually do justify and account for what we're doing in this thing? Um, you know, and, and it was a really good exercise. So I'm hopeful that we can, we can make people think a little bit about this. And that's why, even though this sounds like just a giant teaser for things that we're going to say, because we keep saying, we will cover this and we're <laughs> going to talk about that. I think the reason why it was nice to have this as just upfront is because it gives, it's like a warning shot across the bow. It gives everybody, you know, listeners and us included a little bit of excuse to say, Hey, it's coming. Like we need to be thoughtful about this and including all the way down to like the most finite detail with respect to when you're partaking in the Lord's supper, when you're with your family, your local family and uh, on the Lord's day, what is it that you should be doing? What should you be thinking about? How should you be understanding what's taking place? And not only that, what did you do to prepare for before you got to that point? Yeah. So all these things are super relevant. And I think we either have this tendency, like most things in life, to end up at the extremes where errors reside. And that is either we make this out to be too much or we make it out to be not enough or we don't understand anything about it or we just basically say it's more or less a tradition. I think there's something happening, but we really ought to get ourselves down to like, what is the, uh, the man, I keep wanting to say essential elements. It's just a horrible <laughs> pun for this. That's just going to keep going it. on in this I entire love it. series. That's the name of this series is the essential elements. The series. essential elements. Actually, that's, that's pretty good. So <laughs> yeah, I would encourage everybody, like before we even get into the more technical stuff, I think actually the more condemning question is, can you answer this in a colloquial way that's rooted in scripture? Can you actually explain to somebody who knows nothing about this, what's actually taking place in a, in a way that's cogent and articulate and brief. And if can you describe it in the affirmative rather than just in the negative by trying yeah. to emphasize everything that it's not theologically, can you explain it in a way that it makes sense to somebody, or at least that's enough logical precision that they can get a sense for what you're talking about? Because certainly, of course, there are spiritual elements, what we're talking about here. Yeah. And this will sound really strange to lots of people who, and the natural man is going to be like, you do what? Say yeah. what? But the, the question I think is, our question, if you're with other Christians in the elevator, which I guess you can't be in elevators now because of COVID. I don't know how that works. I don't but know. We still use elevators at the hospital. Is, can you, do you have to like 
determine who, like how many people are in the elevator though? Isn't that like a thing now or no? I don't think that there's signs that say that. I mean, I think people sort of naturally do, but I don't think there's But do you actual... have like the, do you, are you talking about like the giant hospital elevators that like you can fit beds and stuff no, in? No, I'm just talking about like the regular elevators. These are just layman elevators? Yeah. Yeah. Just lay person okay. elevators. <laughs> I don't use the elevators cause they're weird and they break all the time, but we've gone off the rails. It's took an unexpected turn. Um, but the question would be, what kind of what kind of layperson elevator pitch can you give about communion yeah. on the way up to the second floor if you had to? And I, I, it's a little bit challenging for me. So I think this is going to be great. I'm super stoked about this. I love when we do series and we kind of like sink our teeth into something, yeah. spend a little bit more time formulating what we're talking about and just have some deeper discussion. And I know that you love technical stuff as much as I do. I so. Do. We're, we are going to get after some teas in this. Yeah. Yeah. Just to maybe, maybe close and to sort of like. <laughs> to maybe close. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to always catch that it, in uncertainty. We don't know if it'll happen. We but don't to, know. This episode might go on forever. Just to wrap this up, right. You know, Jesse just posed this question of, could you articulate in a brief way that is positively constructed what you believe about what is happening in the Lord's Supper, what the Lord's Supper is? I just want to put in this pitch for something that we always put in a pitch for the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? Boom. So I'm going to read it. And then just to prove my point earlier about Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians being basically the same on this, I'm also going to read Keech's Catechism, right? So question 96, the Westminster Shorter Catechism reads, what is the Lord's Supper? And the answer is the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. Uh, and the worthy receivers are not after a corporal, a corporal or carnal matter, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And then I'm just going to read Keech's uh, catechism. Benjamin Keech uh, basically took the Westminster Shorter Catechism and modified it and adopted it to uh, to be sort of the equivalent to the 1689. Um, and it, for him, uh, it's question 107. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a holy ordinance, wherein by the giving and receiving of bread, according to Christ's faith, uh, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth and the worthy receivers are not after a corporeal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. They're virtually identical. Right so, so at the end of the day, both Reformed Baptists and Reformed uh, Presbyterians, Continental Presbyterian or Continental Reformed, affirm more or less the same thing about what the Lord's Supper is in our confessional documents. Now, the Keech right is on. not a confessional document in the same way that the Westminster Shorter is, but but it, it's intended to be a similar teaching mechanism. So there's your short answer, right? Memorize that. Mem that's why the confessions and the catechisms, particularly the Shorter Catechism, are so useful because we can we cannot have to worry about do I have an elevator pitch for this? Can I explain the difference right. between justification and adoption? Can I can I articulate what it means that Christ is a great prophet? What it means that Christ is a great priest? Right? When your when your coworker says, Well, I think Jesus was a great prophet, you can say, Well, I'll tell you what, he exercised his office of prophet by making known to us the will of God for our salvation. Right? That's not what they mean when they think he was a great prophet. Right. So these little elevator pitches that that the Westminster Shorter Catechism or Keech, if you want to be Baptist, the, that they put forward are there for our benefit. They're there. They give us this answer. Um, right. So memorize it. Look at it. Um, we'll, I'm sure we'll be going back to the catechisms for throughout sure. this series uh, because the confession 
even in the confession, they couldn't get away from saying what it's not. Even in this shorter question, they couldn't get away from saying what it's not. So in a lot of ways, we have to define ourselves um, against what we're not. We have to have that negative definition. But this is an almost exclusively positive definition exactly. to look at. Exactly. It has to be something, right? right? That's what we need to focus on. It has to be something. If God's given it to us, it has, man, I can't get away from these words. It has substance in the sense that <laughs> it's it's real. There is value in it. It stands on its own. It's not defined just by what it's not. I feel like maybe that should be part of our um, new theme on the show. Like, if you want to be Baptist, be Baptist. <laughs> Thank, thanks for the Baptist plug. Also, um, let me modify that challenge a little bit. Like, of course, like we talk about the use of the confessions and the catechisms as these wonderful places on which to stand. So I'd modify my challenge only slightly by saying, take that though. And can you, can you use it in your own words? Yeah. So like not, not a lot of people are going to know what a corporal means, especially not in that particular context. So take that, memorize it and then say, well, how would you kind of translate that? So to speak, so it's a little bit more welcoming to modern ears, or you can explain it in your own words. So somebody's not going to be like, where did that come from? You never use the word corporal. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's a great, it's a really great excuse to memorize it, process it, metabolize it, understand it, and then translate it in a way so that you can make sure it's clear and cogent for all of the wonderful people that are in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I'm excited for this series. I'm excited to dig in a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that I, uh, to close here that I think is a funny story that I think sort of explains okay. the practical elements of this theology. My Go sister is a Roman Catholic and she is actually very involved in her church. She, she's like the wedding coordinator. She, I don't exactly know how all of this works in, in the Roman Catholic church, but she's one of the people that actually like, like holds the dish that you come to take the elements from. Okay. Um, not like an usher. They have like a special name for it. But one of her responsibilities is to always make sure that she has someone who can drive her home after the service. Uh, because, uh, if there is wine left over and there almost always is, right. uh, then it's the responsibility of the priest and the people who are helping to distribute the elements to drink it, to consume uh, it. They very rarely will save communion wine. Um, they save bread a little bit more often than the wine, but, um, so she frequently will find herself with a little bit of a buzz after church because she's required as part of her service to that congregation to uh, drink a lot of wine. Um, and so it, it's funny because that that demonstrates how much a small, maybe not a small, but that demonstrates how much a change in your theology in this area yes. can really have practical implications that are surprising, right? She needs to have a designated driver every time she goes to church. That's part of her responsibilities, which is not something we would ever think about in a Baptist church. So we, we barely ever need uh, designated drivers, even when we're going out for the evening, because we, you know, <laughs> we Baptists don't drink apparently. Wow. Wow. It's got like super ending. prejudicial about Baptists. <laughs> This is, the, this is the best ending I could have hoped for <laughs> on this particular episode. Yes. Well, that was a great story. And I think people have a lot more of that kind of thing to look forward to. Because again, this is one of those places where the theology and practical behavior is like, it should always be intimately entwined and tightly coupled. But here's where you see it a lot yeah. more than on average. Yep. So it's a great window into all kinds of things. So. I would say that we should probably actually end this episode. I know that we, there was there was a point where it was up in the air whether or not we'd ever we just keep talking for hours on end. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll head off to you. 
I thought you were we were bringing the plane down for a landing with that I, there, I, and then I we was, just didn't. I was, but what everybody can't see is that you you kind of shifted the headphones. So I thought I thought you were ramping up for another bit of dialogue. No, I was itching my ear. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. It's it's been a long time. So it has. In, in that in uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesse. We just lost it. I was, it's all this like, if you, I mean, ever since you said, if you want to be a Baptist, go ahead. That, that part, I was like, wow, we've just, a lot of, a lot we of should Baptist rewrite love. that song. If you want to be a Baptist, yeah. Yeah, to all kinds of Baptists love this episode. Well, until we get into all this next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.